Good morning. Hey, I hope you're having a, a good week, uh, that you've had a good week, and I uh, want to welcome you if you're guests with us. We're glad that you are here this morning. Um, look, there's a Connect card in the seat back in front of you, and um, we mention that uh, each week. We'd love for you to fill that out, write a prayer request on it. If you didn't get a chance to drop that in the offering tray, you can stop at the Welcome Center, just find somebody, somebody to hand it to here. You can come up to me or uh, even over in the office area, there's a drop box on the wall. You can just drop it in there. We love being able to pray for you and your family. So if you've got something pressing, pressing on your heart in, in your life, we would love to be able to lift that up for you. So go ahead and fill that out um, and get that to us if you can. Hey, I want to pray for us uh, as we continue in our teaching series. We're going to be in Mark chapter 2 today. Uh, we're going to be walking through the Gospel of Mark over the next several weeks. And so I want to invite you to get a Bible, open it up, uh, grab one of those Bible journals at the Welcome Center. You can... Uh, through the Gospel of Mark, be taking notes and, and study that as well. But let me pray for us, and we'll jump in this morning. Father, you are good. Thank you for allowing us to be here in your presence, Father. Thank you for providing for us, for bringing us to this place at this time. You make no mistakes, and you've got us here for a reason, and we want to hear from you. Thank you for the worship this morning and preparing our hearts to hear from you. And so, Father, we come before you, and we want to hear from you. So speak to us. And we ask you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, my first semester of both my undergraduate study and my graduate school time, my time in seminary, I uh, had an encounter during the first semester of both of those that almost caused me to quit altogether. Uh, as a freshman in college, I found myself on the campus of Johnson Bible College in Knoxville, Tennessee, a thousand miles away uh, from home in South Florida. I'd never been away from home, and so I was feeling that a little bit. On top of that, I'd only become a Christian. I was, I was only baptized um, a few months before arriving on the campus, and so I was a little bit out of sorts. I, I wasn't used to this environment. I, I had just started going to church, and uh, just so happens they have this event for freshmen, or they did at the time. Um, where uh, all freshmen were expected to go to the, the house of the president, which was on campus, and there was this big event in the backyard of the president's house for the freshmen uh, to come, and Bible colleges are not huge, just so you know that. So this was actually feasible. Uh, you'd go to the back, and you'd have a meal and a presentation kind of welcome you to the school. Um, and so we're on our way there, and I don't know what to expect. I've never been a part of anything like this. Um, if you've been to New Hope for a while, you know formal things aren't my thing, uh, never experienced very much of that growing up. I think my wedding was like the third one I'd ever been to. So uh, just not used to this. So I like jeans and a t-shirt. I'm like, oh, we're going to dinner at the president's backyard. Like I'm thinking cookout. Well, other people didn't think that. And they were walking to this as well. And they were in uh, formal attire. And I'm walking and this kid bumps into my shoulder intentionally. Now, growing up, um, not being a follower of Jesus, when somebody did that to you, uh, it was not a, an endearing thing. Um, so he bumps right into me and turns around and gives me this like really snarky look on his face. And two thoughts went through my head. One of them we'll not discuss today. The second thought that, because his words, the things he said, where's your suit? It's time to dress nice for once. First thought, gone. Second thought, I felt about this big. All of a sudden, all I could think about was what I was wearing. All of a sudden, all I could think about was not fitting in, not being in the right, not having it figured out. It distracted me for the entire event. 
Now, fast forward. Um, by God's grace, he put the right people in my life to keep me at the school and to keep me focused. But I get to my first year of graduate school, and my wife and I are taking a class together. Um, and we're in this Greek class. Now, Greek is the language that your New Testament was originally written in, and we uh, were supposed to translate um, a book. As you learn the Greek language, we were translating the book of Philippians, which as a church we're going to study later on this year. But we're translating this book, and the final project for this class was to stand up in front of the entire class. Now, at the time, small detail, my wife was eight and a half months pregnant with our first child. Uh, so standing up in front of the class is not naturally something she'd want to do anyway. Uh, some of you, I can, you know my wife, she's just not going to be the person that wants to be up front and in front of people, and let alone uh, eight and a half months pregnant for the first time in a class where you're going to be quizzed and present uh, Greek translations of the New Testament. So she's a little intimidated to begin with, and we're up there in front of the class, and a kid uh, asks this question. And uh, they were allowed to do this, but he looks at my wife and he says, I have a question for you. And he pointed at her. And my question is going to be one that I'm pretty positive you're not going to be able to answer. Now, two thoughts went through my head because uh, I'm standing next to her. One of them in involved the desk moving rather quickly. Uh, just leave it there. But the other one was instantly exhaustion. I'd had enough. I was just so tired of how Christians were competing with one another. I was exhausted because this kid thought he needed to prove to everybody in the class how smart he was at the expense of my wife. I was tired because of the competitive nature among people that were supposed to be brothers and sisters in Christ. I was exhausted because in graduate school, it was all about who was smarter, who was more gifted, who was going to go on and have a successful career in ministry or academics, and I just had enough. I just wanted to be done. Now, I got quizzed a lot after first service. What happened? Uh, the professor interjected and said, I'm going to answer this one, Sarah, and I'm going to give you an answer that I guarantee you, you won't understand. And sure enough, he leveled the kid. It was sweet, okay? Uh, so, but... But in the moment before the professor uh, did his Superman thing and saved us, uh, or saved this kid, <laughs> see what I did? Uh, <laughs> it just made me feel small again. And I'm like, I'm just, this is both encounters, my freshman year of college and my first year in grad school, I had, I had come face to face with legalism. This, this attitude of superiority, this imposing of standards, upon somebody else, trying to get them to live up to your st their standards for you. And, and it hurt. It was difficult. Now, to be fair, I don't think that either one of these people that I encountered, I don't think their goal was to create pain in my life. I think it's fair. But that's the problem. They weren't thinking about my life. They were thinking about themselves. And oftentimes, that's what happens when our hearts get pretty legalistic about things and we hold on to things. See, this is the difficulty of legalism. Now, legalism, let's uh, get a definition here. It is, at its core, it's a belief that we can earn or keep God's favor by what we do and how well we behave. And what happens when we like, encounter this or what happens when we uh, actually engage with legalism in our own hearts, which we are susceptible to doing, is really one of two things that, that takes place. The first is we begin to make following Jesus about how well we behave. And look, when you're behaving well, things are great, right? 
when I'm spiritually on point and I'm, I'm tackling everything the way I need to and things are going really well, I feel so good. But the problem is when I make a mistake or when I face a temptation I can't seem to overcome or when I continually struggle with this sin, what happens when we are legalistic about our behavior, when we lose sight of heart transformation and only focus on behavior modification, what happens in that moment is I begin to bear a shame for my own sin that I can't carry. And in a legalistic approach, what I'm going to do then is I'm going to try to overcome that sin by trying harder and doing more. So I'm going to try harder and I'm going to do more. Maybe I overcome it for a little while, but then it comes back and it begins to str- I begin to struggle with it again. And this is why I'm convinced we have a lot of people that end up burning out when it comes to their faith. We have a 70% of evangelical children, children of evangelicals, walk away from Jesus on the campus of a college every year. Seven out of ten. Because I think they've been raised, and maybe with pure motives, but they've been raised in a culture that says you need to behave a certain way. This is who you are. This is what Christians do. Behave, behave, behave. And every time they struggle, they carry the weight of their own shame. And we've not told them where to take that shame. And so they try harder and they do more. And then then they fail. And then they try harder and they do more. And they fail. And they try harder and they do more. And they fail. Ultimately feeling like, I can't keep up. I can't do this anymore. So I'm done. And they walk away. So that's one thing that can happen to us when we're caught up in legalism. The second thing, though, is not just personal, but we we create this paradigm of behavior that we impose upon other people. And so now, when I'm walking around, I might feel good about how I'm doing, but I'm going to notice the flaws in other people. I'm going to begin to notice how they're messing up and not living up to the standard that I think they should be living up to. They don't dress the right way. They don't act the right way. They don't talk the right way. And so I've created this standard, and they keep failing, and I keep judging and noticing all of their faults. And it creates tension and the relationships that are around us. See, this is what Jesus is going to encounter as we continue kind of walking through his life in the Gospel of Mark. Very similar encounter with people that have this, these legalistic views and they're trying to impose them upon Jesus. And he's going to respond to this and give us a lot to think about today. This encounter Jesus has, it's the third of five controversies that Jesus faces with the, the religious leaders in the day. The first two we've already kind of explored Uh, The first one was when uh, this group of friends lowered their friend from the roof of a house down in front of Jesus. And Jesus then healed the friend, but he did something even more. He forgave the sins of the friend, and and the religious leaders began to say, who is this person who thinks he can forgive sins? And Jesus had to engage there. The second one came... Uh, right before this passage, when Jesus befriends a guy named Levi, or we would know him as Matthew, and he's a tax collector. And tax collectors in those days were shady characters. They were very greedy and selfish. They mistreated people. They had a horrible reputation as being kind of the bottom dwellers in culture. And Jesus befriends Matthew and his tax collecting buddies, and he sits down to share a meal. Now, sharing a meal with somebody in that day was an intimate thing. It was affirming for anybody else who knew you were sharing that meal with them that you had a friendship with this, these people. And so Jesus, eating with these tax collectors, is letting the people around him know, I'm okay with uh, engaging in friendship with this group of people that I don't agree with, these tax collectors, these shady, greedy sinners. And they come and they say, hey, why in the world would you share a table with them? Why in the world would you associate yourself with that group of people? And then Jesus responds in verse 17 by saying, that's why I came. The whole purpose of me coming was for these broken, sick people. The whole purpose of my life is to be given for these broken and sick people. And now we're going to begin this third controversy that he has to face in verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. 
And people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees, real quick, the disciples meaning learners, Okay, these are people that are following in the way of these. So John's disciples, we learn, John the Baptist comes out. He's got these disciples who are sitting underneath his teaching. The Pharisees are a little bit different. They serve in an official capacity. So you've got these followers of the Pharisees that wanted to learn from them. Disciples of the Pharisees is kind of a weird phrase because they have an official position. It would be like saying the disciples of the Republicans. Like, it's just a little bit weird. Uh, and, and, but you have these followers who are trying to behave and live like the Pharisees. And... Then the question's posed, so their disciples fast, and John's disciples fast, Jesus, but why is it that your disciples do not fast? Verse 19, and then Jesus engages. He, he responds to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast on that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old and the worst tear is made. And no one puts new wine in old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst, will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. So this idea of fasting, uh, many scholars think that Jesus is approached and asked this question when he's sitting at the table with Matthew and his buddies, feasting, having a meal at the table. And they're like, hey, hold on, they, they fast, right? And the, the Pharisees' disciples fast, like, we're fasting right now, we're hungry, and you're eating. This isn't cool. Why are you doing this? And Jesus responds to them. But this idea of fasting, it's fascinating when they're asking it. You see, according to Leviticus chapter 16, the Jewish people were only commanded to fast one day a year. It was known as the Day of Atonement. It was this national day of repentance and forgiveness where you would fast in an effort to focus on your need to repent and God's forgiveness that's given to you. And so that was the day of the year they're supposed to fast. But over time, this rule that was developed, the Pharisees wanted to develop more rules around it, maybe in an effort to keep them from breaking it, but also to continue to enhance it. They created a paradigm. So by the time Jesus is teaching here, the Pharisees, the religious leaders had said, no, yeah, you fast one day, but we're also saying you have to fast two other days every week, the, first, the second and the fifth day of the week. So Monday and Thursday, you have to fast. And then they began to think, Really godly people will obey this. Really godly people will obey this fast. Really godly people are going to submit to this fast. So when they encounter Jesus, and he's not engaging in this fast that they had created and then imposed in their legalism, it baffles them. They had created a legal system, a religious system, that was so stale, and it was devoid of joy, and was all about just completely being super serious. And so Jesus' analogy in response to them is fascinating because it deals with, you're missing the point here, there's a lot of joy that comes in following God. And he uses the analogy of a wedding, which is really fascinating because weddings in those days were different than they are today. You see, a, a bride and a groom would get married, and after the wedding ceremony, they would have a reception, much like we do. But theirs lasted a week to ten days. And it was open house style. People were coming and they were going and they were feasting and having a party and enjoying their time together. It would be super weird in our culture. But that's how they did weddings. The entire community would come to the weddings. It's like things shut down like Friday night football in Texas. Like everything shut down and the whole town went to the wedding. Okay? And at this wedding, there's a lot of feasting celebrated. Well, along the way, there was a rabbinic law that said if you are considered a friend of the bridegroom, you do not have to engage in fasting for that week. So you were exempt. 
And so Jesus comes and says, hey, you know your own rule. Well, you added another rule that exempted people from fasting when they were with, they were friends of the bridegroom. They're with the bridegroom. They don't need to fast because they're my friends. They'll fast when I'm no longer with them, but they're not, they don't have to fast right now. Now, here's what's even more interesting. The Bible teaches us that the Holy Spirit lives in us as Christians. Therefore, Christ in us means we're not just friends of the bridegroom. We are now the bride of Christ. We have a joy that should exude from us unlike anything else the world would know or experience in any other arena. The church should be filled with people that have joy. And so Jesus says, you're missing the entire point of fasting in general. It was about connecting to God, not simply obeying him. It was about bringing your attention and your focus to your reliance upon him, and you're missing the point by just trying to behave. Jesus says, you can miss this joy, and he connects it to another analogy, and he begins to talk about old garments with a new patch or old wineskin with new wine. And what he's saying is this, he's the new wine. He's the new wine, and when you put new wine into an old wineskin, it doesn't work, which means you cannot partially follow Jesus. This is what Paul would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. When you become a Christian, you are a new creation, not a partially new creation. You're not an old creation with a little bit of Jesus sprinkled in. He said when you become a Christian, you die to your old self, you become a brand new creation, you're all new. Here's the problem with legalism, though. We begin to say, I want all of Jesus, except for right there. I want to hold on to this tradition. I want to hold on to this belief. I want to hold on to this area of my life that I can control, and I'll let the new wine flow to every other part. But Jesus says there's a problem when you do that. It's like putting a patch on an old garment. When that, new garment, that old garment is stretched, the patch is going to rip off, and you're going to have an even worse problem. He says it's like putting new wine in an old wineskin that's not ready. When the wine begins to expand the old wineskin, it rips and everything is lost. He said you need a new wineskin. You need to be a new garment. You need to be made completely new in order to let Jesus be Lord of every part of your life. But in our legalism, we hold on to certain traditions and certain preferences and certain desires. And we say, Jesus, I'll let you have most of this, but not all of this. And most people I meet would never say that out loud. But like we said last week, one day in your life will show us, does your life prove your statements, your claims to be true or false? Does the life you live prove what you claim to be true about you to be true, or is it now false because you're not living out what you said you would? And so this is what happens with legalism. We say, I'm going to hold on to this, but I'm all about Jesus. Let me give you an example. This is a rough example, but we're already tackling a tough topic. Let's just make it tougher, all right? So let's say we come to church, and we're involved, and we're a disciple of Jesus, and it comes to this concept of our money, okay? This has been a struggle for me in the past. And some people are like, this is easy. We'll get to that in a minute. But we come and we come to understand that, hey, the Bible teaches that a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, is to tithe 10% of everything. And so we're like, okay, 10% is a lot. I don't know that I can do that. So I'm, I'm all for Jesus being a part of every other part of my life, but I'm going to kind of hold back in this one arena. I'm not, I'm not going to let it be a part of that. And it could be based on our fear. It could be based on a lot of things. And we might say, hey, if you really tell me to tie 10%, you're being legalistic and we're trying to get away from it. I don't really want to tie 10%. I can't tie 10%. I need to control this area of my life. Then you got another group of people that says, yes, 10%, that's what the Bible says, that's what I'm going to do. So I give 10% of everything, and I'm a very generous person, so God must be happy with me. But I know my neighbor Bob over here. He comes to church too, and I can guarantee you he's not tithing, so God must be happier with me than he is with him. See, legalism 
both ways. When we begin to think that somehow we're earning God's favor by what we do, then our actions drive the confidence that the relationship we have with God is to be made up of. And our actions are a pretty weak foundation to build that relationship on. And so what happens with legalism, Jesus comes and says, that's not the point of either one of those. You don't just do it to do it. You do it because you have a deeper understanding. You've been made new. When you're made new, when it comes to your money, you realize this. Jesus, this isn't my money at all. God, this is all yours, and you've asked me to take care of this part of it. And when I do it the way you've asked me to do it, I get to be a part of something that's pretty incredible. You recognize if every Christian family tithed to 10%, no church would have any debt in America. No missionary would not have the funding they need to do the mission work that they're doing. And we say, I'm being a part of this, and God says, man, when you do this, look at this. It's going to be a part of an incredible picture. That's what happens. This is what Jesus is saying. He's, but he doesn't say it's going to be really comfortable and easy. But here's the thing I've learned. The new wineskin, when it's being stretched, that's the moment it is most connected to its purpose. Because it is allowing the filling of that new wine to infiltrate every part of its life. And they say, okay, Jesus, you got us there. We'll get you. And so a few days later, verse 23, it says, One Sabbath, he was walking through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain, and the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? So now, instead of uh, fasting, we're going to talk to you about Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, and those, he was, and those who were with him as well? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for any but the priest to eat, but he also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was not made for man, was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. There's a lot going on here. But when they ask him about the Sabbath, this is like this important rule that they've kept. And the Sabbath was, it, it's in the Ten Commandments. It's the fourth of the ten, number four on the, of the Ten Commandments. It, it, we're given a ton of, of, of instruction about the Sabbath. We're told that God even rested and uh, you're told uh, Sabbath from Friday at sundown to Saturday at sundown. And when you're doing this, you're not to work. You're only to focus. The whole point of the Sabbath was to connect you to God. Stop doing what you're doing and focus on God. And so the general rule for Sabbath early on was do no work unless absolutely necessary. That was it. But over time, in an effort to protect the Sabbath, they began to make rules around the Sabbath. And they prohibited all kinds of actions. You couldn't do anything. You practically just sit in a padded room and don't think. Because you've got to avoid ever coming near breaking the Sabbath. Because if you break the Sabbath, then an angry God is going to smite you. Like, that was their feeling. God is going to come at you with everything he's got. When God's saying, no, I just wanted you to stop working so you could think about how good I've been to you. I wanted to commune with you. I wanted a relationship with you. And the Pharisees began to add all of these rules. And so when Jesus comes and he says, hey, do you remember what David did, King David? What he's doing in that moment is he's making a proclamation. When he mentions King David, their celebrated king of the Jewish people, and he's saying, David did this, I'm doing this, I'm the better David. He's making a messianic claim right here. He is saying, I'm the better version of David. Everything David did pointed to me, and when it comes to being with me, when David went in and provided for his needs, even on the Sabbath, I'm here to tell you that even on the Sabbath, you can provide for your needs. Now, that's not an excuse to go overwork and take away from family time. What he's saying is, when you have a desperate need, 
you can meet your needs. Why? Because Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. But in their legalistic view of things, they could not see clarity from Scripture. Here's what I find fascinating. It was actually their fear of breaking the command that it actually took away from the joy that was intended in keeping the command. Their fear of breaking that command actually robbed them of the joy that was intended to be given to them in keeping the command. And boy, does that not happen to us all the time. We get a legalistic view and we impose it upon ourselves and then ultimately begin to impose it upon other people. And in those moments, it's so hard to see truth. And so a couple things. I want to define what legalism is and what it's not as we come away from this text. So the first thing that legalism is, and I want to be clear about this, legalism is an abuse of Scripture. It's taking parts of the Bible that cannot bring or keep your favor with God and putting a, a binding on that toward yourself and other people, saying this is not an issue of your relationship with God, but I'm going to make it. I'm going to make your relationship with God dependent upon how you keep and take care of this command in Scripture. But it's not just that. It's taking our traditions and our preferences and enforcing them on other people as an act of spiritual superiority. That's what legalism does. I had a, a preacher uh, send out uh, for some input this, this past week, and he said, um, uh, this is not New Hope. I want you to know that ahead of time. Uh, but he said, their worship minister was getting a lot of flack. Ben's not. You guys are loving on him well, okay? But their worship minister was getting a lot of flack, and he was receiving messages from people in the church, and uh, particularly people that had been in the church for a long period of time, and they actually wrote an email, and in the email it said, along the lines of, I'm not going to read it, but it said, um, the old worship minister was better than you because he sang the songs that all of us like, so we know he was closer to God than you. And the advice he's seeking is, how do you encourage a guy that has just been flattened like that? I thought to myself, that's absurd. It's taking a tradition or it's taking a preference and trying to impose a spiritual command into it. It's legalism at its finest. Second thing is legalism, that legalism does is it promotes performance. And that's always dangerous. It's about looking for the shortcomings in other people, but not in yourself. It's about looking to see who's doing worse than me so I can feel better about myself. It prevents us from looking for ways to encourage and build people up because we're so focused on our own lives and how well or not well we're performing. And I've sat with countless couples, countless families that have based everything about Jesus on how well or not well they're performing or how well or not well their kids are behaving. And it's you've got to look this way, act this way, and do this. And they've missed out on the grace of God that all of these commands in Scripture, all of these quote-unquote rules are intended to protect us and give us a clear view of a God that wants to spend intimate time with us, to get to know us and to continue to develop us. But instead, we develop a legalism that says, I don't cuss, I don't smoke, I don't have sex outside of marriage or do drugs, so I'm obviously better than you. Or it leads us to say things like this, you use the wrong translation of the Bible, you listen to the wrong music, you don't wear the right clothes the right way, you don't give as much money as you should, and so obviously I'm closer to God than you are. Destroys the soul. We forget that Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 2 that you are saved by grace, not performance. 
Grace is a gift that you do not deserve. And the closer you get to understanding how much you don't deserve grace, the more freely you offer it to other people. The further you get from understanding that grace is something you did not earn and you do not deserve, the harder it is to extend grace to other people. And that includes yourself. Now, when you study church history, what happens is the pendulum swings. Right? And the pendulum can swing so far toward legalism that we isolate people and we create damage in their lives. And in an effort to get away from that, we can swing the pendulum all the way to the other direction and we leave truth in our wake. It's left behind us. And my fear is that the pendulum might be swinging too far the other direction. So let me give a couple warnings about what legalism is not. Legalism is not an excuse to ignore personal holiness. And I think that in a, out of a fear of feeling like we might come off as legalistic, we have used that as an excuse to ignore our personal pursuit of holiness. So we won't talk about Jesus in certain environments. We won't talk about how important he is. We won't make certain decisions or choices to not engage in certain things or to engage in other things out of a fear of coming off as a legalistic Christian. Now, let me be clear. The Pharisees were absolutely wrong in how they approached this in our text today. They're focused on religious behavior. They become judgmental. But I want you to notice what Jesus did not do. Jesus does not respond to them asking about fasting or about Sabbath by saying, we're going to do whatever we want to do. We got this thing figured out. You're not going to tell me how to do it. You're not going to tell me. I'm the one that's figured this out on my own. I've got this thing taken care of. You're just a bunch of religious rule-keeping prudes. That's not what Jesus says to them. See, Jesus' response and his goal here is not to compare who's behaving better. Not to say, oh, you got it wrong? Let me tell you how to get it right. His goal was to offer clarity. As a matter of fact, I think that if responding to the Pharisees led some of the Pharisees to change their view, Jesus would have been okay with that. And in a culture like ours today, the way that we engage in disagreement and debate, I think if somebody changed their mind, we wouldn't know what to do. Wait, wait, what a second? What, what, whoa. You mean I don't have to continue to come after your family and your character? You see, for Jesus, what was most important for him was the hearts of other people. But he did not compromise truth in an effort to engage with those people. And all through the New Testament, we're told, engage with love, but don't forget truth. And oftentimes, we're so scared of being legalistic, we don't think about truth. Paul warned the church in Rome this way in Romans chapter 1. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. There's a warning in there, because I know that the gospel is the power of God for the salvation to everyone who believes, everyone. Meaning, I'm not ashamed to talk about the power of the gospel in my life, because I want desperately for other people to experience the power of the gospel in their lives. Paul does not say, I am not ashamed of the gospel because I know I'm right, and because I'm on a cultural crusade to destroy my opponent. He doesn't. I think it's safe to say that Paul would say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, and I deeply want you to feel the same way. You see, legalism is not an excuse for you to avoid your personal holiness. The second thing is this. Legalism is not an excuse to make church about comfort and entertainment. See, the other thing that Jesus is not doing here is condemning legalism in an effort to make following him easier. It's not it. He doesn't say, don't be legalistic. Following me is way more comfortable and easy. 
See, Christians are not exempt from pain and suffering and disappointment and tragedy and difficulty. No, we're not. Jesus just simply says that approaching this with a legalistic mindset is bearing a weight that you're not capable of carrying. I've sat in a lot of living rooms with a lot of hurting people. It's one of the things, that's a, just a, it's a part of what I feel God has called me to do. And I've sat with a lot of weeping people and hurting people. And I'll tell you what was not in the room helping them in their deepest moment of pain, legalism. There's nowhere in the room. Maybe if I just behave better, maybe if I just do more. No. In your rawest moments of pain, legalism is nowhere to be found caring for your soul. But you know what else wasn't? Entertainment. If I could just go and just be entertained with this idea of Jesus a little bit more. No, that wasn't either. You know what was in the moment that helped the most? It's truth. It's the promises of Jesus that no matter how hard you, no matter how bad this hurts, I'm right here with you. It's the promise of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 where Paul says, we grieve, yes, but not like the rest of the world because we have this hope. And this hope has been instilled in you by the power of the Holy Spirit. Legalism robs us of that. And the Bible is clear. We are to hold one another accountable. We are called to confess our sins to one another. In James chapter 5 and 1 John chapter 1, confess your sins to one another. Make sure that you're doing the hard work of checking your soul and making sure that you're not becoming legalistic. And so what is it we need moving forward? Three things real quick and we'll finish up. The first is this, biblical teaching. We need to stop entertaining people with the Bible. We need to teach them biblical truths. You need to be studying the Bible and reading the Bible. But here's the thing. If you selectively read the Bible, you can make it support any legalistic stance you want it to support. You can pull verses completely out of context, and you can make it read however you want to support whatever viewpoint you have. So the encouragement in biblical teaching is not just to go listen to certain preachers and podcasts, but to read Scripture. And don't read it selectively. Read the full counsel of God and allow the Bible to begin to read your heart and your soul. And it leads me to the second thing, which I also said last week, but sermons don't have to stand all by themselves. You know they can flow together, uh, just in case you didn't know that. Number two is, we need to get serious about connecting with God. And I believe with all my heart that the church in our country, more than anything else, needs to teach people to connect with God. Because here is a truth that I'm very convicted by. You will never flourish spiritually by feasting on somebody else's connection to God. Ever. You cannot eat a diet based purely on someone else connecting to God. At some point, you must get serious about your own connection to God. And here's the danger, friends. The longer that we are in church, the more susceptible to a hardened heart of legalism we are. The more time you spend in church, the more time you spend following Jesus, the easier it can become to develop rules and regulations and base things on your behavior and achievements. Your heart gets hardened and you become legalistic. So what Jesus is telling us here is watch your heart. Continue to connect to the Father to prevent yourself from becoming legalistic because your heart will deceive you and it will get harder quicker than you think it will. So stay on guard, stay awake, stay alert, and connect with God. And one of the ways that we do that is the full counsel of God reading Scripture, but in addition to that, it's number three. We need other people filled with this new wine. We need to see people that have not used an old wineskin, but they're using... They are a full new creation, and we can watch their life, and we can see, man, they are, they are modeling what it means to follow Jesus, and they're going to help me do the same thing by helping me stay connected to the Father, not just dependent upon them, and I'm going to see what it looks like to really be a disciple of Jesus. That's what discipleship is. It's an invitation to do what I do. I saw an interesting picture this week. It said, teaching is, come and listen to what I say. Mentoring is, come and, and watch, what, watch 
like, watch what I'm doing and listen to what I'm saying. But discipleship is come and do what I do. Like, do the very things I'm doing. That's why Paul said to the church in 1 Corinthians, he said, imitate me as I'm imitating Christ. I'm, I don't have it all figured out, but I am allowing that new wine to flow through every single part of my life. And it's painful and it's hard and it's difficult. That's why we need one another. My wife said to me just the other day, who is it that we can be that to? What young married couple can we begin to invest in and really disciple? And then we begin to ask, who is it we can go to? Who's a few steps ahead of us that we, be, we can begin to allow to invest in us because we need this. So here's how I want to close. I'm going to close with a time of prayer. And uh, Ben and the team are going to come and lead us in a song because I think oftentimes we can walk away from this and think the only way to overcome legalism is to try harder and to do more. I'm going to walk out of here and I'm going to do, 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 do. And, and the only way you can overcome is Jesus. He's the only solution. But I know when a church gathers, there are some of you that have been on the receiving end of some really harsh legalism. Kind of like a kid bumping into your shoulder or somebody targeting your pregnant wife. And it can make you furious, but it can also break you. And it can hurt your heart. And you've been told to behave a certain way for a long time and to do certain things so that you could be a good Christian, only to continually come up against your own failure and not know what to do, and you're burning out. But on the flip side, there's a lot of us who have offered too much legalism. And we need to repent. And we need to overcome our own judgmental spirits. But again, you can't do that by trying harder and doing more. You need to come to Jesus and allow the new wine to flow through a new wineskin and make you different. So I want to pray for us. And then they're going to lead us in a song that's really a prayer coming out of this prayer time. We're going to sing this song together before we close. Let's pray.